nice happy message today. Why hell? <laughs> Those born agains, what are they up to this time? <laughs> oh, Lord, thank you for Yuma. Thank you for saving us from hell, Father. Revelation chapter 20, verse 11 to 15. Excuse me. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who was seated on it from his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were open. Then another book was open, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they have done. And the sea gave up their dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word always enlightening us, giving us understanding, Father God. And I pray that you breathe upon the text tonight, Father God, to give us an understanding of your justice, of your wrath, of your holy nature, Father God, and how far we have fallen as human beings from your image, Father God, how outstandingly great Adam was, how magnificent of a creature created in your image he was, God, and how he fell willfully from grace. Give us understanding, Father God, of the plight of humanity around us, Father God, the depth of depravity in us, Father God. Shake off the cobwebs, Father God, if we have fallen into any indifference when it comes to your holiness and your justice and your creation and your good order, Father God. Forgive us of being lax over these things, Father God. Give us a fresh understanding of just how just you are and just how awesome Christ is. In Jesus' precious name. Speaking to a friend of mine a couple of years ago, we were at the dinner, a bunch of ministers, and we were fellowshipping, and and, and we talk and we share stories and we have a good time, you know, we huck it up. And I was teaching, I was telling him, yeah, I was teaching on hell, and and he jumped in, he says, I never teach on hell. Interesting, for a man who's been in the ministry for over thirty years, then I respect. I was like, well. I didn't give it much thought then, but as the weeks went on, I thought about that state. Now, why would any gospel-believing, Jesus-preaching, Christian who loves God, not teach unclearly what the Bible teaches everywhere? And uh, as I was getting ready for this, I was talking to another brother, and he sent me an article from the Gospel Coalition. Gospel Coalition says this, five reasons preachers avoid sermons on hell. Five reasons. He says this. What if someone said your preaching was missing one ingredient that could undermine the effectiveness of your entire ministry? He goes on to say, this is the, sadly, this is the state of much preaching today that aims to be biblical but misses something essential to a full-orbed biblical 
Christianity, he says, is the judgment of God. Some who seek to be faithful to scripture unconsciously avoid preaching hell because of an underlying framework. I'll explain that later on. Others consciously avoid it because they perceive their listeners don't want to hear it. And that's a deep concern for us. He goes on, here's the five reasons preachers, whether consciously or not, may avoid preaching. I like the way he frames that. May avoid preaching judgment. The number one, one reason is that they have subtly bought into a version of the prosperity gospel. And though they, he goes on to say, though they might not preach prosperity, they don't want to offend people. You see, prosperity gospel is, is tries to affirm that God is everything for you. He wants to do everything. He wants to give you everything. So what they do, they avoid anything that sounds too strong. Amen? And make God sort of like Santa Claus. And I've shared this before, that many churches will build up numbers by subtraction. You ever hear addition by subtraction? The more people you want in your church, the less you preach on judgment and sin and hell. If you're consistent with not touching on sin, you're consistent with not speaking about morality, if you sing a lot of songs, you do a lot of good things, and you avoid the the essentials of Christianity, salvation, from hell and damnation, then crowds will come. And people do that. Consciously or unconsciously, I think more consciously. The second reason, he says, they have idolized God's love to the neglect or denial of his other attributes, which is right on. Specifically, his hatred of sin. His just wrath against sin. Number three. They have tragically diminished, they have a tragically diminished view of God's holiness. And that is a deep concern for us. That's a deep, because if you don't have a, a real, true, biblical perspective on God's holiness... You cannot love Christ properly. You might be moral, but you cannot love Christ, the divine judge and savior, properly. Number four, they have a pragmatic approach to ministry. I love this one because this hits the American preacher right between the eyes. Pragmatic, if it doesn't work, don't. No, if it doesn't work, If it's working, let me rephrase it another way. (laughs) If If something doesn't bring people in, then don't. Pragmatic. They don't want to hear it, Pastor. And me and John had to sit there and hear one day and say, well, we don't do Sunday school no more, and we ask why, because no one goes. So no one goes, so the church don't preach, don't preach anymore. No one wants to hear it. Don't teach. Nobody wants to go to church. You don't don't do what the people want. You do what God wants. You know who did what the people wanted? King Saul. The people wanted all the spoils. When Samuel said, when you go, wipe out every living thing, man and beast. But Saul said, but the people wanted the good stuff to sacrifice to God. That's a pretext. He was fearful of the people. And it goes on to the last one over here, not just pragmatism, but the preacher fears man more than... Now, the fear of man is a snare, Proverbs teaches us. 
But it's, it's amplified and heightened when the preacher is afraid of man. He opened up, like I said before, preachers could undermine the effectiveness of their entire ministry. And I believe that. Remember something. Ministry to us is not how many people come. Ministry to us is not how many people like us. Ministry to us is preaching and teaching with tears in our eyes until Christ is formed in you. Whether you like it or not here for an applause or accolades or how wonderful. Woe to you when they speak well of you. But I ask this too. Even in our witnessing. Trust me, the first thing I speak about when I speak to people about Christ is how much he loves them. And he cares for them and he nurses them. But sometimes, you know, sooner or later, if someone's going to get saved, they have to go to the cross. You can speak about all the good stuff. But sooner or later, for someone to turn into a saint, from a sinner to a saint and be redeemed, they, they have to go to the judgment of Christ on their behalf. You have to go to the cross. You can't avoid the shame of the cross. So these things have always tickled me, and, you know, and, and it means a lot to me. One of the other reasons I want to speak about this today is because a lot of preachers don't know how to handle it. It's not just they don't know, understand the, 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 the depth of depravity. They don't understand the holiness of God. They don't know, understand just how incredible Adam was and how the relationship between God and man is supposed to be. They don't understand the, willful, the willfulness behind sin. They avoid these because they're not properly educated. When you properly understand this doctrine, one day, I can't do it now, but one day I will be, and you will be, in Revelation 19. In Revelation 19, the harlot has been judged. And her smoke goes up forever and ever, and the saints cry, hallelujah. One day we will rejoice with God over the vindication of his holy nature. One day we will say, praise God. God has vindicated himself against Satan and everyone that believed the lie that if you sin, you shall not die. You see, we live in an age that Especially in Western culture, this intellectual age we live in, it's, they're insulted. People are insulted with the, the concept of hell or God's wrath. You know, we live in a very highly optimistic, human optimistic land, and everything's going to be good and everything's going to work out fine. There's nothing that man can't do. If we wanted to build a tower up to heaven, we can do that too. We'll call it Babel. There's nothing. As humans, if we put our minds together, we cannot do. We can fix anything, generation is what we live in. And there's no real moral standard to govern life. That is a, that, that's a crux. There's no moral standard to govern life. 
And what we have today is humanity without a conscience. We have an America without a conscience. We have an America that that's, scoffs at the thought of God's judgment and God's wrath. Like, almost how dare you even speak to me? I spoke to a friend of mine, a good guy. And I spoke to him, and he goes, he questioned me on hell, and I told him. He goes, he goes am I going to go to hell? I said, if you don't believe in Christ, you're going to hell. He goes, how could you say that about me? I said, you're an atheist. You don't even believe in God. Why are you upset about hell for? You don't even believe in God. You, you're always fighting me about the existence of God. But I said, but what is it about this doctrine that drives you crazy? What is it that's getting under your skin? Cut me down real quick. Because eternity is set in the heart. Paul teaches us in Romans chapter 2 that chapter 1, even though they do such things, they heartily approve those who do it, even though they know it deserves death. There's something in humanity. I'm going to get into that a little later on. We have a, there's no conscience, there's no conscience, there's no conscience at all, has no grasp of the moral right or wrong. It doesn't, uh, there's no conscience. Am I right or wrong? We live in a society without a conscience. There's no evaluating faculty on our words, our deeds, our attitudes, our motives, our actions. There's nothing. Everything is according to your own law. Do whatever you want to do. If no one's physically hurt, they don't know how to evaluate their conscience. You know, Rome fell for this very reason. Their decadence, all they wanted is entertainment, sexual immorality. Scholars, historians teach us that that was the the corroding effect on the inside of Rome that took her down. The new conscience that we're talking about is a convenient conscience. It's a comfortable conscience. It's, it's, It's not just... Tolerable to wrong. It promotes the wrong. We live in a society that promotes wickedness. If there's anything America needs, they need to hear the judgment of God. If there's anything our friends and family need, along with the gospel, they have to understand that Christ took eternal hell. Their conscience is so seared. They stand in judgment of God's law. They think they can make up the rules as they go along and that God has to approve of these new rules. They have no idea that God is a consuming fire fire with zero tolerance to all sin. They're immune, calloused, hardened. Paul says, lovers of evil and not lovers of God. This new conscience promotes the wrong. It's also crafty. This conscience denies and dismisses the evidence of a real moral breakdown in our society today and even in a person's life. A life people's lives are falling apart and they cannot attribute it to the moral factor. Society's falling apart. Families are falling apart. Individuals are falling apart. And if you bring them to the root of the problem... There's a veil on their eyes. This does not compute. This 
That means I'm the, I'm the problem. It's, it's not someone else's fault. Surely it's someone else's fault. This is the conscience we've got to deal with. There's no such things as moral absolutes. This type of society of which we're talking about, of which we live in, is out of touch with the concept of morality, which will naturally be out of the concept of hell. And please, when we're talking about God's wrath, God is not wrath. God is what? Can you reconcile the two? See smoke going up now. See, God loves the right. And wrath is a reaction to the wrong. It's a just reaction. A loving, just reaction to the wrong. It has to have a reaction. Sin has to have a reaction. For God to be God, the creator of the universe, it has to have a reaction. The wages of sin is what? Do you think Paul's talking about a physical death? Or the second death we read about tonight? Can the teaching about God's love be consistent with the God of wrath, as I just mentioned, Can these two seemingly opposite teachings be reconciled? Yes, they can, and they should, and we all need to realize it. Let me bring two concerns I have for tonight in tonight's teaching. Number one, the teaching on hell is clear as the teaching on heaven. Matter of fact, Jesus teaches more about hell than he does about heaven. And should naturally get its proper place in Christian teaching. When we teach Month in and month out, week in, week out, year in and year out, over the course of the, ministry, the life of this ministry, we consistently speak on the wrath of God, the justice of God, the love of God. Consistently. We don't speak with an assumed hell. Well, we just don't talk about God's dirty little secret. Like we're ashamed of God's, what's God's dirty little secret? People don't want to hear that. We, just, we assume it. And we touch upon it, but we really don't teach on it. Well, you won't get that here. We want you to know who your Savior is and what he exactly did for you. Number two. The second thing is that it doesn't, unfortunately, get its proper place. As we read those five points of the Gospel Coalition. And this leads me to believe that even within Bible-believing churches and many Christians... It's misunderstood. And so like my friend, ministers of 30 years, good men, chose not to preach on hell. For whatever reasons, I can't tell you. Probably pragmatism. Probably maybe fear of man. Probably didn't think it's all that important. But every book in the Bible just about teaches it. It's not God's little secret. It's God's very nature. And that's what Christ took for us. And the sad part is as Christians, if we don't understand it, if it's not taught, if it's not preached, from a high view of God's holiness, we don't, we don't scare people out of hell. Not about scaring people out of hell. It's about giving the holy, righteous character of God It's due in our churches. We do not have a low view of God. We have a high view of God. And so should you. 
This is the God of the scripture. And Christians need to be nurtured on how this high view of God's holiness is. Otherwise, it will creep into our life. And I'm telling you now, you will and I will have a low view of sanctification as it's really not all that important to deal with the sin in our life. It is important to deal with all sin in our life, not from a paranoid state. I'm not just talking about sexual immorality. I'm talking about gossip. I'm talking about being malicious. I'm talking about being divisive. I'm talking about speaking about people. I'm speaking about lying. I'm speaking about stealing, whatever it might be. We deal with every area of our life. Amen. And if I have a low view of God's holiness, then why should I pick up my cross daily and crucify my flesh? But it comes from a high view of who God is. And he proved it at Calvary by crucifying his son. Not just because God so loved the world that he gave his own son. God hated sin so much he gave his only begotten son. Christians need to be taught. To bring out a greater, deeper worship. A deeper reverence. For the triune God. And all his work of salvation. Holiness. I'll speak about it. It's moral perfection from our point of view. Holiness is God's otherness. You can't explain God. He does everything he can to explain himself to us. He's, he's I am. He's everything basically we're not. Everything. He is moral Perfection. He has a zero tolerance towards all sin. But even if this correct definition lies much ambiguity, it's hard to grasp it. It's still abstract, it's still hard to understand. Let me explain. In scripture, holiness, when it pertains to God, means Without moral flaw, without failure, unlike humans, he is totally opposite of us morally. His thoughts, his desires, his words, his intentions, his motives, his actions, his attitudes, his acts are always consistent, perfectly consistent with love. There's nothing he doesn't do that doesn't emanate, emanate from love. Nothing. Even the judgment of sin. He has never had an ill thought towards humanity. He has never had an ill thought towards you and me. Never. Always his gracious disposition towards his creation... So much so, it's called common grace. Jesus says, be perfect like your heavenly Father is perfect. He is kind and gracious to ungrateful and evil people. That's God's disposition. That's love. He always has humanity's best interest in his heart, even when they don't seek him one bit. On the other hand, we as human, humans could never say that. We could never say that about a statement about our society at all. We're selfish, self-centered, 
And always act out of a place of personal satisfaction and reward. God, by his very nature, can never tolerate sin or those who commit it. It's an offense to his personality. It's an offense to his intentions on creation. To create a world, a sanctuary, that's what the garden was. It was a sanctuary where God and man would fellowship forever. That God would be glorified in his creation. The creation would love God and love one another. And they would build the garden and extend the garden to one day the garden would cover the whole earth as the waters covered the sea. That was the intention. God's wrath is a natural reflex towards sin. It's a just reaction. Sin has to be punished. It has to be extinguished from God's presence. It has to be thoroughly dealt with. As far as the east is from the west, either at Jesus and Calvary or the lake of fire, one day sin is either going on Christ for us or you're going into the lake of fire separated from the presence of God. Sin cannot stand in the presence of God. So much so that when Christ was hanging on the cross and it got dark out and God had to forsake him, God denied his son. Denied him. Heard the cry of his righteous heart and said, no. I cannot. You're bearing the penalty of the sins of your people. And I'm pouring the full cup of my wrath Onto you. God so hated sin that he gave his only begotten son. Sin has to be punished, it has to be extinguished, it has to be cast as far as away from the presence of Almighty God. God cannot tolerate human sin, it's an affront. To God, it's a disdain of all that God stands for. And though God hates human sin, God loves human people. He loves humanity. He hates the nature, but he loves humanity. Created in his image. Holiness unites and gives. It's love. It unites and gives. Sin separates and destroys. Sin and selfishness is always at war with holiness. Sin in the Bible is always defined as a living entity, Paul says. There's something in me. I don't do the things I want to do, but the very thing I don't want to do, I do. It's alive in me. Sin is alive in me. It seeks to destroy me and everybody around me. This is always the conflict. Between law and love. Sin is an enemy of divine love. It's an enemy of the will of God. It's an enemy of the moral law of God. The commandment of God. It's both an insult and a crime against the true nature of God. As revealed in scripture. 
the all-wise and loving creator, the all-benevolent sustainer and the gracious redeemer, sin is an affront, it's an attack against the very nature of God the creator. We pick up the paper and we read. I read this front page today. I had the one-eyed sheik just died in jail. 9-11 was the best theology I ever heard him say. I will meet you in hell. It's probably the only good theology he ever had. You see, you and I know when we read the paper, when we hear of something heinous happening, instantaneously, we cry for what? Justice. Justice. Has to be justice. The thought of a judge letting off a perpetrator, a molester, a pedophile, a raper, a murderer, drives us crazy. And it should. Because we're created in the image of a just God. Society wouldn't work if we didn't have that cry. It's a painful cry. It's a real cry. It holds us together. But understand something. How much more God? God has to deal with everything. In his way. And the more premeditated a crime is, guess what? The more harshly it's judged. There's crimes of passion, and then there's premeditated murder. Someone can kill someone in the heat of passion and maybe do 10 or 15 years. Someone can premeditate something and do the rest of his life in jail. Or the rest of her life in jail. Why? Because it was thought out. Sin is thought out. Rebellion against God is thought out. I'm trying to paint the picture so you see from God's perspective on the seriousness of human sin. When properly understood from a biblical perspective and not from an earthly, emotional, personal perspective, well, I just don't like to hear that. It's not about our emotions. not about what we like to hear. Understand something. In hell, there are no atheists. Everybody's a believer in hell. No one's saying, I didn't know. I, no, th- this place does not exist. This, is, this, is, this does not exist. I'm not really here. You're there. It's real. You can't get away from it. It's not about personal feelings. Justice is not about feelings. It's about truth. When we understand it, we begin to grasp the magnitude of our own personal sin and what Christ has done for us. When you really think Jesus got in the way and he took our hell, he took our eternal punishment, he was the propitiation, he appeased the wrath of God against our sin. Please let us never get so familiar with God that we forget about his holiness and the cost of our salvation. 
as I began with, when ministers are not faithful to this doctrine, as they are with more favorable ones like mercy or grace or forgiveness or love, holiness becomes cheap. The whole scheme of salvation becomes cheap. It really doesn't cost anything. God's people are malnourished before it, because of it. Because on the other side of these more favorable doctrines is the truth of God's judgment, the truth of his wrath, and ultimately hell itself. And that is why we can teach on love and mercy and forgiveness, because Christ took our place. Now, let me. There are three major New Testament texts that speak about the love of Christ. John 3.16, what does it say? Romans 5, 5 says that God demonstrated his love when he poured out his love into our and perfect love cast out. Okay, I want to show you something. I'm going to to stop preaching. I'm going to teach. I'm going to go to John chapter 3. All three of these texts have something in common. John 3, starting verse 16 to 19. Listen to this. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. We all love that. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn it, but in order that the world might be saved to him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of his only son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and the people love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. We see in the same context... This great famous verse of scripture that speaks about the love of God also speaks about what? The judgment of God. Same context. Listen to Romans chapter 5. Starting in verse 5. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love is important to our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has come to us. Does that feel good? The love of God has been poured out into our hearts. For while we are still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one dare even to die. But God shows his love in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved from what? Love of God poured into our heart, saved from the wrath of God. There's no fear of the wrath of God. 1 John 4. I'll start in verse 17. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because he has because as he is, so also are we in the world. Therefore, There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with what? And what has taken away the punishment? Perfect love. Perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment. In these three New Testament texts that people love to quote consistently to prove that God is what? It's always in the context that his love was exemplified by removing the wrath of himself. This is love. 
When someone says God is love, how can you prove God is love? Because he took my wrath. He took my wrath. That's how I know he demonstrated. While I was still a sinner, Christ went to Calvary and died for me. He, He took my wrath. He's a God of wrath. He has a just reaction to all my sin. And I deserve the wrath of God. This is why I sing. This is why I pick up a cross. This is why I tell people, as Paul says, that we stand as ambassadors to Christ because we know all men have to stand before the judgment seat of God and we employ all men, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled. I'll go as far as this to say this. If someone preaches Christ and they preach the love of God, if they don't know how to handle the doctrine of God's holiness and the wrath of God, to me, they're not qualified to speak about the love of God. They're not qualified. They're empty words. Empty words ripped out of its context and give it an emotional, human sentimentalism. Not a redeeming love. It's a redeeming love. It's a propitiatory love. It removed the wrath of God. We're not ashamed. God has no dirty little secret. Because the world doesn't want to hear it. That was my introduction. Let me speak about our text. What we see going on here in the book of Revelation is a courtroom drama. This is Jesus Christ in all his regal divine glory. Sitting on the throne. All his power. All his regal splendor. All his judicial power to make every wrong right. From the smashing of Abel's head with a rock by his brother Cain to the last sin ever committed, Jesus Christ is going to make it right. As he says on his earthly ministry, what was whispered in the alleyways in the darkness will be shouted from the rooftops. God sweeps nothing under the carpets. The books are open. Be scared. The books are open. There's no circumstantial evidence in this courtroom. All the facts are there. The books are open. All man's sin is revealed. All the secret sins are revealed. The secret sins. Listen to Paul, 1 Timothy 5.24. The sins of some people are conspicuous. You can see it. It's obvious. Going before then to the judgment. But the sins of others appear later. You see, some people, they're sick. They don't look really bad. You know, I'm not that, I'm not that bad, Brian. My sins aren't that bad. I'm, they're inconspicuous. I'm not like the bad people whose sins are conspicuous. You can see it. Paul says, don't worry. When they go before God, their sins will catch up with them. In the light of Christ, everybody will see what they really are. The books are open. All the pain the sins have caused other people will be there. Sin all 
always hurts. It always destroys God's good creation. So much so that James says, with our mouth we worship God and we curse God at the same time. Because why? We curse man created in his image. We don't realize what Jesus says. Every word uttered out of their mouths will be brought to the judgment. You have heard that it was said, you shall not kill. But I tell you, if you have anger in your heart towards another human being, you are liable to the hell of fire. This is our Savior. This is Him who sits upon the throne. We sung about Him tonight. This is who Jesus Christ is. All the pain sin has caused, they will see. The willfulness they have done it in, the spirit of willfulness, they will see. The the premeditated nature of their sin, they will see. The motives of selfishness, of self-gratification at the expense of others will be exposed. Malice, slander, their nature will be exposed and represented. All sinners will hear the indictment against them. One sin after another, after another, after another. Not one convenient lapse of memory. God will make his case clear. It's a judgment. People don't die and then just go to hell. People die when they're they're going to be taken out of hell and brought into the judgment of God to stand trial. When the trial's over, nobody will say, I'm innocent. They will say, I'm guilty. And I know I'm guilty. That's how clear it will be. The conscience that has been dulled by sin will be sharpened and awakened perfectly. The conscience will have no props to hide behind. They won't have pride. They won't have excuses. They won't have justifications. They won't have forgetfulness. They can't blame others. They won't have a high opinion of themselves. They won't be able to hide behind their titles and their positions of sir, boss, pastor, elder, reverend, doctor, captain, coach, president, governor, movie star, athlete. All the accolades and praises of men will be gone. Gone. There won't be nowhere to hide. Heaven and earth have fled away. They've stepped out of time and space. They're now in eternity. All these false props will be annihilated when they stand before Christ. And he takes them apart inch by inch, word by word, deed by deed, day by day, week by week, bringing them back to their first conscious sin. They will see a whole life spent on sin. They will see what Jesus says. He who gains his life in this world 
will lose it in the next. The second death. And then God will show them how every time, as Paul said, that God revealed himself through the created order. How God tried to reveal his love and mercy to them through nature, through conscience, through the law of Moses, through the gospel of Christ. And they denied it every time. All of a sudden they will see in eternity how many times God tried to speak to them and put them on the right path. And they denied the evidence of God's existence with some cheap excuse. Every cold case will be reopened and closed. There'll be no plea bargains, no plot twists, no new eyewitnesses, no charismatic defense attorney winning over the jury. Maybe there's a reasonable doubt here. Maybe they're not that bad. No. Wait till Christ, like a surgeon, goes through all the evidence piece by piece. What looked like justice delayed when God said, if you eat, you shall die, will not be justice denied. For a thousand years is like a day to God. Christ is in his element. Right now, mankind mocks our Jesus. Right now, society laughs at our Jesus. Right now, they think the word of God is meaningless. It's of a bygone era. It has no truth at all. It's not worthy to evaluate the motives and intentions of men's heart. But understand something. Christ will be in his element. And mankind will not be in his. And I've shared this before. I'll share it again. I went to... Do jury duty, and it was, it was a capital offense. And I remember that, that it was a tense courtroom scenario. For almost two weeks, I was on this jury. jury. And I remember seeing the judge, he was sitting there. If he was 120 pounds soaking wet, that's all he was. And the prosecutor was this little girl. Speaking bold. Little girl, she looked like she was like 30 years old, 25 years old. But she could speak. And she could prosecute. And she'd bring indictment after indictment after indictment with the full authority of the Supreme Court behind her, the, soup, the, the full authority of court behind her. She sat there and the judge listened to all the evidence. And when it was all fine and done, he was guilty of the crime. And then when I saw them in the hallway, I saw just a man, I saw a girl, but in their element, with the full weight of the law behind them, right now they're laughing at Christ as he's some kind of straw man. Wait till you see the Lion of Judah that has the scepter in his hand. Wait till you see him alone who can cast into hell or bring into heaven. Wait till you see him who has the keys of the kingdom of life and death in his hand. Wait till they stand before the divine life giver and judge. How can we not love Christ? How can we not warn others of impending judgment? 
have one application. One. If this does not capture and arrest every ounce and fiber of our being, nothing will. If you're not living for Christ now, and this truth, not this sermon, I don't flatter myself, not this sermon, but this truth hidden in this text, if it doesn't get us to wake up and to see how serious life is, how short life is, how uncertain the future is, and we don't realize that this is the next thing in God's program, there's no second chance. It's appointed for man to die once and then comes the judgment. There's no grace coming. It's either here or never. Open up your mouth. Let God fill it with good things and tell people, win them over to salvation in Christ. Does that mean we run around yelling and screaming, don't go to hell? If God calls you to do it, go for it. But for most of us, we're just going to love the people in our life. Amen. So much so that I'm going to find myself crying for them. Because they don't know Christ yet. And praying with others for their soul. Knowing that my hands are tied, but my mouth isn't. And I'm going to beseech the Lord of heaven and earth. The justice, the just judge of all the earth. I'm going to beseech him on behalf of sinful man. Would you join me? Father, we thank you. We love you, Father God. We understand, Lord God, that some of these things, some of these thoughts are much higher than us, Father God. But we do know in our heart of hearts that Jesus took our wrath. We know he is the sin bearer. We know he's the propitiation for our sins and not just for ours, but for the whole world. First John says that anyone who will come and confesses Christ shall be saved, Father God. We leave the particulars up to you, Lord God. But God, let us go out like ambassadors, as Paul says, knowing the fear of God. We beseech all men be reconciled to God and Father where in any of our lives we have indifference towards the sin in our heart anywhere in our life we've had a a low view we got so comfortable with you that we don't really pick up the cross on a daily basis and crucify our flesh God we don't watch what our eyes watch We don't watch what our ears hear. Help us and forgive us, Father God, and give us a fresh new start with you in Jesus' name.